Attention Disney enthusiasts, film fans, and those who have grown up with and have been inspired by Disney animation films. Drawn to Greatness, Disney's animation renaissance tells the story of Walt Disney Studios' hit animated films of the 1990s. This incredible book, written by celebrated author and 20-year Walt Disney World veteran Michael Lyons, provides the chronological story of how a group of Disney artists trained by legends who had worked on the studio's classic films believed in the power of storytelling. Each Disney animated film from this era is captured in first-hand detail, including how the blockbuster success of The Lion King was a circle-of-life moment for the studio, how The Nightmare Before Christmas went from a forgotten project to a scary success, how Toy Story took animation to infinity and beyond, and so much more. Get your copy of Drawn to Greatness, Disney's Animation Renaissance today at Amazon.com or through Michael's website, wordsfromlions.com. If you order through his website, Michael will sign and personalize the book to you. Again, that's wordsfromlions.com, L-Y-O-N-S.com. To all who come to this happy podcast, welcome. Hi, I'm Scott Jacobs, and this is season two of The Mouse and Me. On the show, I'll chat with my pals who come from all walks of Disney life, including Imagineers, dancers, technicians, directors, musicians, and stuntmen, and Broadway friends who have worked on stage and behind the scenes. We'll talk attractions, shows, food, characters, tips and tricks for planning your trip and navigating the parks, and more. Now, put on your Mickey ears or your princess crown and enjoy season two of The Mouse and Me. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Mouse and Me. I'm your host, Scott Jacobs. Do I have a fun and exciting guest for you today? He is a freelance writer specializing in film, television, and pop culture. He's contributed over 500 articles to such websites as animationworldnetwork.com and fandom.com and the publications Sinfantastique, Remind, and Disney Magazine. He's the author of the book Drawn to Greatness, Disney's Animation Renaissance, which chronicles the unprecedented growth at the Walt Disney Studio during the 1990s, resulting in such classic films as The Little Mermaid, The Lion King, and Toy Story. He also interviewed many artists, directors, and producers in the entertainment industry, and these interviews are featured in several volumes of the book series Walt's People Talking Disney with the Artists Who Knew Him. From 2000 to 2020, he worked full-time at the Walt Disney World Resort, where he held several leadership positions in operations and training and development. He worked at all four of Walt Disney World's theme parks, Disney's retail and dining center, Disney Springs, and off-site company locations at Orlando International Airport. He was also part of the team that reimagined Disney's flagship retail location, the World of Disney, and the opening of Star Wars Galaxy's Edge. Lastly, in 2020, my guest focused full-time on his writing. You can read his work on his blog, Screensaver, a retro review of TV shows and movies of yesteryear, in a weekly column on the website animationscoop.com, and you can listen to him as he co-hosts two podcasts, Disorder, Every Disney Film, and From Pencils to Pixels, the Animation Celebration Podcast. Please welcome the man with the golden pen, my pal, Michael Lyons. Michael, hello, and thank you for being here. How are you? Hey, Scott. I'm great. Thanks for having me, and thanks for that great interview. I feel like I've just had my life flash before my eyes in a very good way, so I appreciate that. Thank you. Oh, my pleasure. Uh, first of all, I, I don't know when this interview will drop, but at least at the time of this recording, your book just hit one year in publication, so congratulations on your book anniversary. Yes, thank you. Yeah, March 6th of this year was the one-year anniversary, and uh, it's a, another surreal experience. I never thought I'd have a book, let alone one that would stick around for a year, so it's been great. Can we start there? Can, can we talk a little bit about your book? Yeah, sure. What was the impetus for writing Drawn to Greatness, Disney's Animation Renaissance? Yeah, so believe it or not, the idea for this book actually started about 25 or so years ago when I was working as a freelance writer um, in Long Island, New York, where I'm from originally. And I was lucky enough at that time to 
cover a lot of the Disney movies that came out during the Renaissance period of the 90s. I covered everything from The Lion King through The Emperor's New Groove, and I got to interview the animators, the directors, the producers. And I remember thinking to myself, it would be great to tell this story of how they turned Disney around, because animation was really struggling at uh, the Disney studio in the 70s and 80s. And that idea always stayed in the back of my mind. Um, I then switched careers, came down to work for Walt Disney World, continued to do some writing on a part-time basis. And that idea for the book was always in my mind and an opportunity uh, to connect with a publisher at uh, Theme Park Press, a gentleman named Bob McLean, who's the um, publisher of Theme Park Press, came up in 2020. Um, and he said, uh, what book would you like to write? And I proposed uh, doing a story on uh, the Renaissance because being a pack rat, as well as a writer, I held on to all of those interviews through the years. They were still on computer disks, so I had to figure out a way to get them on my MacBook Pro, <laughs> which I did. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I was just very fortunate that I held on to the information for that long and I still had that idea in the back of, uh, in the back of my mind because, you know, in the 90s, I would talk to a lot of other writers who had written books about Walt Disney and the nine old men of animators and the classic films. And they would all say they'd give anything to go back in a time machine and walk around the Disney studio and talk to Walt and the animators back in the 30s and 40s during that golden age. And I thought, wow, I've had an opportunity to talk to these animators during this time of the Renaissance. And it'd be really great to capture that. So um, yeah, it's it's been in the works or in the back of my mind for about 25 years. I thought it would be really good to uh, get this information out there uh, so that everyone could understand the work that went into these movies that have influenced um, generations. And my friend Scott, um, another Scott, uh, always tells mm -hmm. me that um, he said, in a way, you've been writing this book your entire life. And I said, yeah, pretty much. Now, you mentioned the studio was struggling. What do you think happened to Disney's animated films that necessitated a renaissance? Yeah, I think um, when Walt Disney passed away in 1966, and you'll often hear this a lot from uh, historians and a lot of the uh, folks that were at the studio at the time, you know, they they lost uh, they they lost what they felt was a vision, and I think they all started looking to. You've heard many times, "What would Walt do?" Quote unquote. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, Walt was a great storyteller, and all Walt did was tell really great stories, and he knew that's where anything good began, whether it was film, television, theme parks, and I think that's where they struggled in the seventies. And, and the 80s, because they tried to focus on some other things and doing different uh, things for, for Disney, rather than just starting with a solid story and going from there. But during that time, you had a lot of animators that wanted to do this. You had a lot of pent-up creative energy that said, just give us the opportunity to tell a good story and do something new, and we can do it. And then in 1984, when Michael Eisner and Frank Wells and Jeffrey Katzenberg came on board as new leadership, they came from television and movie studios where they knew story first. They weren't really familiar with animation. So they knew that was a starting point as well. And they gave those uh, creative folks that freedom uh, to finally kind of break free and tell the stories they wanted to tell. When writing Drawn to Greatness, was there one film in particular that resonated with you the most? And do you have a new favorite film or appreciation for one because of the research and writing of the book? Yes, that's a great question. So my my favorite film of this era um, was and still is The Lion King. Um, I think from the history of that time frame, uh, I think everything came together perfectly with The Lion King. I think, you know, as wonderful as Beauty and the Beast and Aladdin that came before it were, I think they really found their, you know, they found their speed with, with Lion King. And um, they were able to tell an incredibly deep, rich, emotional story that's a very human story without one human in it. And there's an animator, Andreas Deja, who animated uh, Scar, uh, the villain in the film. And he's the one who who noted that. He said, we are telling a story that every person on this planet can relate to. And there's not one person uh, in this movie. And I think, 
you know, the fact that it was such rich storytelling coupled with um, character animation where there were real performances in the characters, um, the blending of new technology that was in there, music, it just all came together uh, really well and really perfectly for The Lion King and for, for variety of reasons from an artistic to just what it means in the timeline. That's my favorite. And the movie that I probably gained um, uh, new appreciation for, and I do every time I see it, is probably one of the, if not the most underrated movie of that time period. And that's The Rescuers Down Under from 1990. Mm. Um, the first uh, theatrical sequel uh, in animation form that uh, that Disney had done. And, um, you know, it's it's a wonderful adventure film, which you usually didn't see from Disney at that point. Um, additionally, the work that went into that movie, animator Glenn Keane and his work with uh, the scenes with the eagle, Marahute, flying, are just, uh, I mean, it, it was almost 3D uh, cinema before there was 3D cinema because he just did a beautiful job. And then Brenda Chapman was one of the story artists who created these storyboards and these pieces of story where she really connected a bond between the young boy, the leader of the movie, Cody, and Marahute the Eagle that really gives the movie a uh, heart. And um, just researching it for the book. And then every time I watch it, I have a renewed appreciation for The Rescuers Down Under. Nice. You mentioned before that you spoke with all these producers and directors and animators, story artists. You even spoke with Walt's nephew, Roy E. Disney. Did, did you know all of these people before you started this process or did you have to seek them out and forge new relationships? Yeah, I actually had to seek them out. Um, luckily, um, there is a wonderful man who uh, was working in publicity for Disney then. He's still there now. His name is Howard Green. Um, and uh, another uh, author, John Canemaker, who's written uh, several books on Disney animation, he calls Howard the patron saint of Disney animation historians. And I think that's an apt title for Howard because Howard works for Disney, but he has passion for Disney history and Disney artistry. So when I would be writing these articles for magazines, the magazines just initially said, here's your contact at Disney. And then when Howard and I would get to talking, he would get excited talking to me who was excited about wanting to learn more about these movies. And he would say, oh, you need to talk to this person. You need to talk to the art director. We need to connect you with the, the head of CGI. Oh, you need to get with the producer. And um, I'll never forget that um, I was flying out to California um, to do interviews for Tarzan and Fantasia 2000. And the night before I was flying out, um, Howard had given me a list of uh, people I was going to interview and a schedule. And he called me the night before. He said, we have an addition to your schedule. Um, you fly in tomorrow and the next morning at nine in the morning, you're going to be interviewing Roy E. Disney in his office here on the studio lot. So as you can oh, imagine, nice. I, yeah, I didn't sleep much the night before my flight. Um, and I spent my entire flight just refining questions uh, for, for Roy E. Disney. And that's probably my favorite interview of all time uh, that I did, because not only was it an opportunity to speak to somebody who was part of the Disney family and had watched this company grow and change, um, but he was just so generous with his time. And much like Howard, you could see he loved talking with someone who wanted to talk about it. And he loved reflecting back on everything he had seen grown within the company. And, and Fantasia 2000 was a passion project for him. So he loved talking about that and animation. Just a very, um, a very generous man uh, who appreciated, um, appreciated everything he did and everything that Disney meant to others as well. What was his role with the company when you were talking with him? At the time, I believe he was the chairman uh, for feature animation. So I believe he was uh, he was the head of feature animation at the time, and he was the executive producer, I believe, on Fantasia 2000. Okay. Isn't the Walt Disney Studios an amazingly fantastic place? It's it's unreal. Being there is one of those one of those places where when you're when you're there, it looks fake. Like you can't believe you're actually there. It, it is like, you know, um, 
for for those of us who've who've been to New York or or spent time in New York, when you see some place like the Empire State Building for the first time, you can't believe you're actually standing there. Yeah, when you're on the Disney Studio lot and you see the sign for Dopey Drive and you see the commissary and you see the animation building, you know, you, you have to look around and say, am I really here? Like this this doesn't seem real. It seems like I'm on a recreation of someplace I've always heard of. I was out at Disneyland a couple of weeks ago. I, I'm I'm one of the luckiest guys in the world. I, I was uh, in the parks for five days, and I left the park one morning, went over to Burbank, did the tour of Walt Disney Studios, and then you know wow. went went back to the parks. That tour was so enlightening, and the information that was thrown my way. It, it was so much information and I probably mm. retained like 5% of it. Right. Um, but just being there where it all happened, where it all started. And I, and you, you mentioned the sign with Dopey drive. I have a photo of me yeah. with the sign and I'll, of course. I'll, I'll text that over to you uh, after the, the interview, but it, it was such an incredible experience. Yeah. I, I completely agree. There's just so much, uh, movie history and really so much cultural history that lives right there at the Disney Studio. Yes, please tell me you went to uh, the the patio area where all of the handprints were. Yes, yeah, yeah, right there with um, all of the seven dwarfs up top there. Uh, yes, the building. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now that that's another surreal moment. I love the, the the story behind why it's the seven dwarfs. You know, it's because it was the first. Disney animated film that really solidified him and gave him the money to then do all these other things. So it's them holding up the building and holding yeah. up the arches. Like, yeah. oh, that's so smart. What a nice detail too, right? Of the the symbolism of them holding everything up and supporting yeah. everything too. Yeah. Did you, do you ever get writer's block? And if so, how do you overcome that? Yeah, you know, um, it, it's funny because... I asked a writer one time if they ever get writer's block uh, because I was very fortunate. And up to that point, I had never had it. I would always be able to find at least something to write, even if it was just a paragraph in a day, I would write it. Um, and I asked a writer one time, do you ever get writer's block? And he said, I don't believe in it. And I said, really? He said, yeah. He goes, you don't see a construction worker getting construction worker block or a plumber getting plumber's block or a dentist getting dentist block. It's your job. You know, just like you might have a good day and a bad day. It's never really a block. It's just you might not be having as productive a day as you usually have. And I said, that's really relatable because no matter what you do, no matter what you what job you have, um, you know that there's going to be days where you're going to go into work and you're going to get a lot done that day. And then there's going to be days where you go into work and you're going to think you get a lot done and you get derailed by different things and you leave and you say, well, I got about 5% of what I thought I was going to get done. So that's kind of how I've looked at it. Not as much writer's block, more as more of like, well, I had a really productive day today or, well, I just wrote a couple of sentences, but at least it's something. At least the, you know, the, the book is continuing towards its conclusion. Oh, that's a good way of looking at it. I like that. From start to finish, how long did it take you to write Drawn to Greatness? Now, I know you said that that you were working on it, you know, in theory for like 20 years, but but when you actually sat down to truly put this book together, how long was that process? Probably a little over, um, probably a full year from start to finish. I, um, I started it uh, in earnest, probably January of 2021. I completed the book and submitted the first draft in June of 2021. So I wrote it in about six months. Um, and then, of course, you get the galley proofs uh, back from the publisher. And they are um, an electronic version of what the book will look like when it's laid out. Um, and you have an opportunity to go through that again, sent it back to the publisher. And then they gave me one more pass. And I submitted it probably right before the holidays of 21. Uh, so in all, just about a year from start to finish. Okay. What surprised you the most about the films when writing the book? Probably what surprised me the most and what I had forgotten through the years is, um, you know, there, there's a, a saying about animators that um, they are actors with a pencil. Um, and, you know, one of the legendary animators who worked with Walt, one of his nine old men, Ollie Johnston, um, always used to say and always used to tell animators 
like before you um, before you sit down and draw something, what is the character thinking and what is the character feeling? And I believe he used to keep that posted above his desk. And going back and reviewing the interviews I had done with folks like uh, Glenn Keane and Eric Goldberg and Andreas Deja and um, all of these amazing animators that I had an opportunity to uh, speak with, I really did learn listening to them the thought that goes into not just getting the right pose on the screen and making sure that the drawing looked good on the screen, the character looked good on the screen, but that there was a performance that was that was coming through in in the in the drawing. And you know, um, I think about you know, there's a there's a story uh, about Mark Hen. Uh, another legendary animator at the studio, and he animated um, Princess Jasmine um, in Aladdin. And he told the story that he based Jasmine on his sister, and he would keep his sister, her, her high school photo above his desk as a reference because he wanted to bring some of like his sister's personality through uh, to Jasmine. And, you know, if you think about Jasmine and what, um, you know, what a, what a headstrong, you know, kind of game changer in terms of Disney princesses, uh, that she was, you know, that came from Mark bringing forth that performance and, you know, animated characters are such a unique being up on the screen because you have a vocal performance and then you have an animator's performance that come together. Um, and another great example of that is, you know, the character of Scar from The Lion King. Jeremy Irons, of course, brilliant voice, brilliant actor, um, mm-hmm. one of the most iconic voices in uh, in Disney animation for one of the most iconic villains in Disney animation. And there's a scene in The Lion King where uh, he says to Simba, you know, that line, it's kind of a father and son thing. And when Jeremy Irons recorded it, he put a pause in there. He said, it's kind of a father and son thing. And when Andreas Deja animated Scar, he gave Scar this little flip of the paw. So he said, it's father and son thing. So you think mm-hmm. about those two performances that came together. Um, and that was a real reawakening for me, how much animators do uh, to bring these, these performances to life on the screen. What surprised you the most about yourself when writing the book? Uh, that I could do it, <laughs> that I could finish it <laughs> on time. Um, you know, I I had to look at it very practically for myself. I had never really written anything longer than uh, about uh, 3,000 words. And this book was uh, going to be somewhere about 70,000 words. It wound up at about 72,000 words. Um, and the only way that I could look into attacking that was looking at it practically, looking at the deadline and knowing that if I completed so many words per week, I would be at this point by this date. Um, and I just had to give myself those little goals. But, um, you know, there were some weeks where, man, I hit that word count this week. And there were some weeks where I said, I have some words to make up next mm-hmm. week. So, you know, when all was said and done, and I remember emailing the book, to Bob, um, the, uh, the, the biggest, uh, surprise for me was that, um, was that I did it and I didn't even realize it at first. I remember talking to my dad and saying, well, I sent the book off to the publisher. And my dad said, wow, he goes, you know how many people in life say they're going to write a book and how many people actually do it? You know, you should kind of reflect on the fact that you said it and you did it. So yeah, it was just not to oversimplify it, but it was just a surprise to me that I finished the book. <laughs> What advice do you have for those wanting to write their first book? So um, a, a couple of things. I would say um, if you if you want to write, um, I remember hearing this from, of all people, Steven Spielberg, who's more associated with film than writing, but he was accepting an award. I think it was the Irving Thalberg Award at the Oscars back in the 80s. And he said that anybody who wanted to get into film should really start reading books because It all starts with story. It all starts with writing. And he said, only a generation of readers will give us a generation of writers. And I think that's such great advice because you, as a writer, you learn so much from other readers, Um, like, like anything that you want to do, you learn from others who do it. And so I would first and foremost say, read as much as you can, 
read things that are out of your comfort zone. If you want to write fiction, read nonfiction. If you want to write nonfiction, read fiction. If you want to write a uh, horror novel, read anything but a horror novel because you, it's kind of a buffet. You'll go along and take a little bit of what each writer is doing and make it your own. Um, I would also say write every day. Again, even if it's just a couple of sentences, a paragraph, um, you know, a page, at least you've you've done something and you've exercised that that writing muscle. And then give yourself a goal, an achievable goal. If you say, you know, I'm going to sit down and write a book uh, by the end of this year, you have to really think about what you have going on in your life. If you have work, if you have family, if you have other commitments, be realistic about that and give yourself realistic goals. And then, you know, bite off things a little at a time. I just talked about giving myself the word count each week. That was the way that I attacked it. But there might be different ways that you do it. If you can only write on the weekend, then say, hey, I'm just going to write five pages every weekend. And I know realistically that's what I can do. And then uh, finally, the last piece of advice, uh, this actually was from Stephen King, who said when he writes a book, he, he uses it, uh, he thinks of it as a road trip and he has a map and he knows where he's going to wind up and he has a, a direction to get there, like a GPS, but he might make some detours along the way. Like, you know, you have your GPS, but you might pull off the freeway and take a side road and then come back on the freeway. Mm -hmm. He said, but you're always going to know your destination. You're always going to know your conclusion and where you're going. Um, but you need to have that. You need to map it out in some way. So those are just several pieces of advice that I would give to anybody out there looking to write a book. What was your first role with the Walt Disney Company? My first role was um, I was a frontline uh, employee or cast member, as they're called at uh, at Disney, on uh, with merchandise. So in one of the merchandise shops on Main Street, USA, in the Magic Kingdom, I worked in a shop called Exposition Hall, which is no longer there. Um, it was the camera center uh, where mm -hmm. back in way back in 2000, when people actually used cameras. Um, we used to sell cameras and we would get jammed film out of cameras and um, we would uh, develop the, the film for guests within two hours. That was a big plus for the guests. So um, nice. That was my first. Yeah, that was my first role uh, with Disney. I had thought about possibly going in the direction of doing something with the writing uh, at Disney, but um, I got very involved and, and began to really enjoy working in the operation and had several leaders who mentored me there. And I wound up transitioning into uh, leadership positions at Disney within operations. What was your next role with them? You, you said that you were mentored and, and, and you were trained. Um, what did you move on to from that retail location? Yeah, eventually um, I, uh, I continued as a frontline cast member. I went over to uh, Disney's Animal Kingdom and I was on the opening team of Chester and Hester's Dino-Rama for anyone who knows that section of the park. Mm -hmm. um, and then from there, um, I was able to um, interview and transition into uh, a leadership role with merchandise operations over at World Showcase at Epcot. Um, so I was a manager for the shops in the American Adventure, the Germany and the Italy pavilions there, which um, an amazing experience working at Epcot, a very unique experience working for Disney because you are part of the Disney experience. But um, and I'm sure many fans of Disney know this, especially visitors to Walt Disney World um, uh, at that time. And I think they're getting back to it now. The cast members in the different country pavilions come from those countries. They come over on a one year program. So I had the opportunity to work with cast members from Italy and from Germany uh, as well. So it was not only a Disney cultural experience being a leader there, but it was a cultural experience uh, and kind of a mind broadening experience uh, working there as well. But that was my first leadership role there at Epcot. In the leadership role, what did a typical day look like for you? Yeah. So, um, uh, as you know, anything can happen. It's kind of, we used to say it was like, you know, on the Mouseketeer show, there's anything can happen day. So every day was anything mm -hmm. can happen day at Walt Disney World. Uh, but, you know, you'd be responsible for um, if you were opening, getting the shops uh, ready for the day for opening. If you were closing, obviously, you'd be responsible for getting them uh, closed up for the night. And then within that, um, you know, you were responsible for the the cast member 
experience there. So uh, developing the cast, assisting the cast with anything uh, that they might need, you know, they might come to you with um, personal challenges that they were going through that was impacting work. They might come to you with schedule, staffing challenges that that they were having. Um, then, of course, the guest experience. So doing whatever you could to create a good guest experience for the guests that came into um, the shop. And then, you know, keeping the business or the operation going. So you balanced each one of those each and every day. And, you know, we would always say uh, at Disney that, um, you know, each one was like the leg of a stool. And if, you know, you created a safe, warm, welcoming experience for the cast, they were going to create that for the guest. And then that would impact, you know, positively your business and your operations. And the the legs of the stool would sit evenly, you know, it wouldn't be Mm -hmm. wobbly. So really like in a nutshell, what your day was, was just taking care of those three things and juggling those three things. What was the most challenging part of that role for you? Oh, gosh, um, probably that there weren't enough hours in the day, uh, you know, to to get everything done, which is kind of the challenge of of uh, of every uh, job, you know, and um, learning that some days it was OK for some things to be a little out of balance. You know, um, if you had uh, a situation where you had to assist a guest with something and that was your focus for the day, if they didn't have a good experience in the park and you were trying to turn that around, that was your focus for the day. If you had a cast member who really needed to talk to you, or especially, you know, working at Epcot where the cast were so far away from their families, if they were going through challenges that with their families back home, you would be with them uh, for the day. And then of course, um, if you were having an event, uh, like I think for fans of Epcot, uh, you we probably all know about the International Food and Wine Festival. So as you can imagine, the the day that we would start that or weekends we would have that, your focus would be on the business and the operation. But, you know, like any other job, you, you would try to balance those things. And at the end of the day, you would look at your to-do list and say, okay, what did I do and what rolls over to tomorrow? Because, you know, I eventually have to sleep and get up again tomorrow. <laughs> sure, sure. Now, you also worked as a guest services manager. How how different was that role from the retail position? Yeah, so it was kind of all in one. So um, what we would say then is you were a guest service manager for retail or merchandise, or there was a guest service manager for attractions or for uh, food and beverage or the restaurant. And really the, the reason that then Disney had guest service manager for, um, my feeling was because you know your priority with the operation was the guest and making sure that the guest was having uh, that, that good experience when they came into the shop. Um, but what's interesting about working for Disney is when a guest comes up to you, they don't look at your name tag and say, oh, you're Michael, you work in merchandise, and I have a challenge over here at the American Gardens Theater uh, in front of the American Adventure, so I won't ask you about this. When they see that name tag, you're Disney. So um, the biggest thing about being a guest service manager, whatever line of business you were in, was knowing that you needed to assist the guest, even if it was outside of the realm of your line of business. So obviously, partnering and collaboration was really very important because, you know, I had worked uh, as a guest service manager in a shop where a guest would exit an attraction. And if a guest had a situation on an attraction where they lost sunglasses or, you know, they had forgotten something on the attraction, you had to have that partnership with the attractions team and collaborate with the attractions team to say, well, let's walk over and we'll talk to Scott, who's one of the managers with the attraction and will will assist you with that. So um, Walt Disney World, every single day for guest service managers was just one big, um, you know, collaboration. Mm. Now, as I mentioned in my intro, you worked in all of the Disney parks in Florida. What was the most difficult thing you had to deal with and the most fun thing you got to do in each of the parks? Wow. Um, I would probably say... Uh, the answer to those would be one in the same, and it was probably my last role as a uh, as a manager. Then my title was proprietor, so I was a manager of the managers at uh, with merchandise at Disney's Hollywood Studios when we opened up Star Wars Galaxy's Edge. Mm. So challenging because there there couldn't have been a brighter spotlight on us 
for the opening of a section of a park than Star Wars Galaxy's Edge. You know, probably one of the most anticipated uh, Disney openings uh, in recent years and one of the most of, of all time. So the months, weeks leading up to that and the preparation for that and the meetings for that and getting ready for that and thinking through the different scenarios of what is opening day going to look like, you know, and, and social media was having a, a field day, you know, they were, uh, you know, showing these these memes of, you know, the line stretching out onto I-4 for an attraction, mm-hmm. you know, which would only raise our anxieties as we were getting ready to, to open things up. But the flip side of that was it was also the most fun uh, I've had because um, that area, the storytelling is just pure Disney storytelling and it is so immersive storytelling. And um, my area that I was in at the time, we had um, one of our areas we were responsible for was what was called um, mobile merchandise vending. So they're the the kind of push carts that the cast members uh, take through the the park. And we were going to have some cast members working over uh, at Galaxy's Edge. And we all got to go through the training for it. And, you know, to learn about the fact that we were going to be part of this storyline in everything that went on there, in the way that we would interact with the guests, in um, the costumes uh, that were worn, in the merchandise that was sold, in the food. Um, that was just so much fun that when you would walk into that area of the park and cross over that threshold, um, you were part of a completely different story. So Star Wars Galaxy's Edge, uh, one of the most challenging times, but one of the most rewarding and one of the most fun for sure. Nice. In the 20 years you worked for Walt Disney World, what were some of the biggest internal changes for the cast members? Um, you know, I would probably say the some of the biggest internal changes were kind of the growth and the technology You know, I always loved talking with cast members who, when I started with the company in 2000, had been with the company like 25, 30 years, some of them almost since opening day in 1971. And, you know, when you would hear them uh, tell you stories about, you know, I remember when we used to have to add the tax with a calculator at the register, or, you know, I remember paper tickets and, and, you know, uh, life before FastPass. Um, I think probably as technology ramped up and things moved from, you know, guests having those paper tickets and those ticket books to now doing everything on their phone. You know, that that's always that's always a challenge. Right. And I I think it's one of those things where the more you do it and the more you could get the cast members comfortable with doing it, the easier it would become. Uh, for them. So that 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 technology and that growth uh, as well, you know, we had a lot of uh, cast members that, you know, I would talk to where, you know, they would uh, they would tell stories of, you know, they remember uh, days when, um, you know, the parks in the off season would close at five or six o'clock um, just mm. because, you know, there wasn't the amount of guests and there were only two parks because there was Magic Kingdom and Epcot when they worked there. Um And the fact that, you know, by the time I was working there, uh, there were the four parks, there were the water parks, there was then downtown Disney and parks were open late and there was what's called extra magic hour and the park was staying open later. So I think change was always uh, a challenge for uh, all of us. And I include myself in that. But, you know, I think the more you would look back at Disney, change was always inevitable. It's always part of Disney's history. And, you know, I will also say that these cast members who had been there since the 70s, they were usually the ones that were the first to adapt to change because they had seen so much of it, you Mm -hmm. know? Yeah. In your 20 years with the Walt Disney Company, how has working for them shaped you personally and professionally? Oh, gosh. Um, I would probably say, you know, personally, it in, in many ways, it allowed me to, uh, well, first and foremost, it allowed me to meet my wife, Michelle. Um, mm-hmm. We were both working for Disney and through a mutual friend who also worked for Disney. That's how we met. Um, and uh, it, with that, it allowed me to kind of personally find my tribe because there are so many like me who left their homes in other states because they love Disney so much and they wanted to work for Disney. And you immediately connect and bond with those people. And many of them have become and still are some of my best friends and 
we talk a lot, or they would talk a lot at Disney about a Disney family. And it's true. You really do become family and, and you lean on uh, one another. Uh, so that's definitely how it shaped me uh, um, personally. Professionally, I would say Disney helped me in so many ways. It helped me with um, time management. It helped me with communication. It helped me with uh, public speaking. Uh, it helped me with professionalism. Um, it it helped me with understanding. It helped me more than anything, understanding somebody else's perspective because you worked with so many diverse cast members from different backgrounds. And each day you had guests visiting uh, that were so diverse and from different backgrounds. So Disney just completely opened up my world personally and professionally. All right, Michael, you get to write a new show for a Disney park. What kind of show are you creating and in what park will it be? Oh, wow. Um, so I would probably say I would love to do something in my favorite park. Magic Kingdom uh, is, is my all-time favorite park. Um, and my cousin Ken and I, we often joke about what we term the Disney adequates. And that's going to seem like an insult. But what we mean that is those are the Disney movies that um, we love, but you don't um, often hear of all that much. So movies mm-hmm. like The Rescuers, um, you know, the Fox and the Hound. Uh, and if I could, I would do some sort of, you know, stage show or castle show with those characters in it. I remember several years ago, the Disney parks, I want to say it was Magic Kingdom, had a program called A Visit from Old Friends. And mm-hmm. you could come and have pictures taken with uh, the characters from Robin Hood, uh, from DuckTales, the TV show, uh, Chippendales Rescue Rangers. So I would love to see a show. I wouldn't call it Disney Adequates because I think that's insulting, <laughs> but I would probably call it, you know, a visit from old Disney friends. And I would have, you know, Robin Hood and the Rescuers and uh, throw in Black Cauldron and Great Mouse Detective and mm-hmm. heck, even, you know, Treasure Planet from 2002, which I love. And and I think that would just be really fun for those of us who love those movies and appreciate those movies and characters, but I think it would also be a way for the guests to discover those movies and those characters. Besides the roles you had with the Walt Disney Company, is there another role that you'd want to have? Um, With the Walt Disney Company, um, something I always wanted to do, uh, even when I was a little kid, was I wanted to do something creative with the Disney company. I, I know a lot of people will often say like, oh, I'd love to design the attractions and, you know, the the different roller coasters and rides and shows. And I don't think I'm that creative, but I used to love to draw and create characters. And if I, you know, had the, uh, you know, the time machine from Meet the Robinsons and I could go back in time, mm-hmm. um, I would, uh, I'd pay more attention to drawing to art. And um, I would have tried to get a job as an animator uh, with the Walt Disney Studio uh, to be there during the Renaissance. And I, you know, I often think back of this and back on this, I should say, and we all kind of kick ourselves for would have, should have, could have. But I think to myself, I was going to graduate from college in 1988. The Renaissance began in the 90s. That would have been perfect timing. So if I could, I'd love to go back and be some form of animator, uh, even now to learn about computer animation and to bring characters to life that way would just be thrilling. Nice. If you had to describe Disney World using only three words, what would they be? That's a good question. I would probably use three of the words that are used uh, for the the cruise ships, and that's magic, wonder, and fantasy. Mm. Those are perfect words. (laughs) Michael, during every interview, I play some Disney games with my guest, and my friend, it's that time. Are you ready to play some Disney games? Let's do it. And now it's time to play Huey, Dewey, and Louie. Michael, I'm going to name three things that are associated with Disney, the parks, and Disney Cruise Line, and you have to rank these three things in the order you prefer. Are you ready? Ready. Festival of the Lion King. Happily Ever After. Boo to You Parade. Wow. Um, I'm going to say Festival of the Lion King. 
boo to you parade and happily ever after. Okay. Now is festival because that's your favorite Disney oh, movie? Yeah. I mean, if, because Lion King's my favorite Disney movie and uh, that show is um, those performers are incredible in that show and mm-hmm. it always gives me chills and it feels like seeing a Broadway show. Um, so that's, it's my favorite stage show at Walt Disney world. So I'm mm. really glad you mentioned it. Uh, and then, <laughs> and then boo to you. Um, I love Mickey's not so scary Halloween party. Um, I think it's just so unique to go to the magic kingdom and see it transformed for Halloween. Um, and uh, I love the Christmas party too, but Halloween is just so unique in that, you know, you get to see the Magic Kingdom a little scarier than usual. And that's why I love um, the parade. Mm-hmm. Um, and Happily Ever After, I think, is a beautiful show uh, as well. I love the fireworks. I love the projection uh, on on the castle. Um, but um, if I were ranking them, I mean, it, you know, it, it, if I'm ranking them, that's, that's a third, but it's a close third to the other two. <laughs> sure, sure. Okay. The next Huey, Dewey, and Louie. Haunted Mansion, Pirates of the Caribbean, Peter Pan's Flight. So I'm going to say Pirates of the Caribbean, Haunted Mansion, and Peter Pan's Flight. Um, Pirates of the Caribbean is my favorite Disney attraction. You know, we talked about Walt as a storyteller uh, and everything that he did. I think that is a fantastic example of storytelling in an attraction. Mm-hmm. Um, and even when it was updated with... Uh, Captain Jack Sparrow uh, being added, it still continued to tell that story. Haunted Mansion, very close second, very close second for the same reason, um, just because, you know, it's such incredible storytelling and the detail of the Haunted Mansion. Um, just as an aside, uh, when I worked uh, for a while with the training team, uh, part of what we did when new leaders would come into the Magic Kingdom, we would get to walk the park with some of the Imagineers, and we got to walk the mag- the uh, Haunted Mansion before it was open oh. with the Imagineers, who would show us the detail of the Haunted Mansion. So it's still thrilling to go through that attraction and know and look for the little details that they pointed out. Um, and Peter Pan's Flight, I, I love uh, as well. I think, you know, again, that's that's a close third to the other two. And I think there are a few things more magical than being in that pirate ship in Peter Pan's flight floating over the miniature town of London at night. Mm -hmm. Are you able to share any of those little tidbits that the Imagineers shared with you? Well, so, um, you know, one thing I can tell you is we actually had a very unique opportunity to walk onto the floor of the ballroom sequence in uh, mm. the Haunted Mansion. And uh, we learned um, how that was done. And I actually used to teach another program at Disney that taught how this was done. And that is accomplished through um, a process that you probably know coming from the theater called Pepper's Ghost, mm-hmm. um, which is um, basically where a reflection is used um, and it's kind of like looking through a window. So if you looked at your at your front yard on a sunny day, you can see your front yard, but you can also see your reflection. So when you pass by the ballroom scene, you're looking into the ballroom scene, but you're seeing all these um, see-through ghosts that are in there dancing and doing other things. The way that's accomplished is, and I hope I'm not taking away too much of the magic for anybody, but there are panes of glass in front of the ballroom. And underneath the track uh, that you're riding on in the Doom buggies, um, there are animatronics where there are lights on the animatronics and the animatronics reflections are in the glass. So as you go by, it's almost like you're looking at your reflection in the window and looking at your front yard. You're seeing the reflections of the animatronics and it looks as if they're floating as ghosts in the ballroom sequence. So Mm. that's just a little pull behind the curtain of how they accomplished that at the Haunted Mansion. I love that. All right. The next Huey, Dewey, and Louie. Mickey Ice Cream Bar, Mickey Ice Cream Sandwich, Mickey Pretzel. Oh, man. Just put all three as a number one, right? Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, I'm probably going to say Mickey Ice Cream Bar, Mickey Pretzel, Mickey Ice Cream Sandwich, um, just to kind of break up the ice cream a little bit. But um, (laughs) the, the Mickey Ice Cream Bar is just, that's like, all of these are, but that in particular is just real comfort food when you're in the mm-hmm. 
the parks, you know, and kind of an, you know, an icon uh, of, of comfort food uh, as well. Um, and, you know, I know you've been on uh, the Disney Cruise Line, um, mm-hmm. but um, uh, have you heard about how you can get a Mickey ice cream bar on the Disney Cruise Line, or at least at one time you could? So I knew that because our table mates, all of a sudden, uh, he's eating a Mickey ice cream bar. Yeah, yeah. And my wife and I looked at each other and we looked at him and we're like, was that on the menu? He's like, oh, no, no, you have to ask for it. We're like, we yeah. have no idea. Yep. Yeah. So you have to order it in some way, either through your server or through room service. And I'll never forget my very first cruise I was on with several friends. We were sitting around the pool on deck and um, one of my friends said, I'm going to go get a Mickey ice cream bar. And he went up and like went over to the house phone. And I think he called room service. And next thing we knew, this crew member comes out with a champagne bucket filled with ice (laughs) with Mickey ice cream bars in it. It's probably the fanciest way I've ever eaten a Mickey ice cream bar in my life. Um, and then, yeah, the Mickey pretzel, uh, and then the Mickey ice cream sandwich, again, just comfort food. Um, and the Mickey pretzel is like a meal in itself. It's, it's really big as well as mm-hmm. being so iconic. And yeah, the Mickey ice cream sandwich, just, I remember a couple of years ago, there was a company that created the Mickey ice cream sandwich. And you can buy them in the supermarkets. They were the shape of, of yes. Mickey. Yeah. They're, they're um, still out there. Are they still out there? And they I are, remember, my wife and I bought them and we had them at home and we were eating them. My wife said, it's just not the same if you're not on Main Street USA or sitting on Hollywood Boulevard. You know, she it is just, correct. It, 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 ta- it tastes the same, but it's just not the same. That is correct. Uh, yeah. Last summer, uh, both kids were doing this um, Broadway dance uh, uh, event in Charlotte, North Carolina, and we were all driving to dinner. And all of a sudden I see a Publix and I'm like, Ooh, I'm a Floridian. That's a Publix. <laughs> right. We're going to Publix. So we, <laughs> right. we, we went to Publix and I was just so happy and I'm walking through and I found a box of the Mickey ice cream bar. So I took a photo of it and posted it to the mouse and me, uh, Facebook and Instagram pages and said, well, if you can't be at Disney, I guess this is the next best thing. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Just find a good bench in a hot day and sit outside. It'll feel like you're maybe feel like you're here, but not really. <laughs> mm, I understand what you're saying. Yeah. Yep. All right. Huey, Dewey, and Louie. This is Restaurants in the Park, Le Cellier in the Canada Pavilion, Tony's Town Square in Magic Kingdom, Yak and Yeti in Animal Kingdom. Uh, Tony's Town Square Cafe. Le Cellier and Yak and Yeti. Um, Tony's Town Square Cafe, my favorite restaurant um, in all of Walt Disney World. Um, I just love the inside of that restaurant, how it's all themed around Lady and the Tramp and Tony's from the movie. And uh, I love the detail outside. I believe it's still there of the heart with Lady and the Tramp's footprints Mm -hmm. by it and the cement Mm -hmm. and all of the drawings and paintings from the film on the wall, the big fountain in the middle and just really good Italian food. Like every time I've been there, especially the uh, spaghetti especiale, like from the movie, you know, the spaghetti and meatballs. Le Cellier, uh, man, you can't ask for a better steak than mm-hmm. uh, than Le Cellier. And, you know, there's no better park experience than to have a really nice, rich meal there and then just go out and watch the fireworks around World Showcase. And honestly, I put Yak and Yeti last and it embarrassed me to say this. I have never been. I have never been to Yak and Yeti. It's been on our restaurant to-do list, but I've never been. At the time of this recording, I've never been either, but we are uh-huh. going in a couple of weeks. Oh, good. Good. So Very I will good. report back. Yeah, please. All right. The next Huey, Dewey, and Louie. Prince John from Robin Hood. Gus Gus from Cinderella. Ka from The Jungle Book. Um, I'm going to start with Prince John, number one. My favorite Disney character of all time. Uh, my favorite Disney villain. Um, I grew up loving Robin Hood. I was a kid of the 70s, so... Um, I saw that movie multiple times in the movie theaters, which was kind of how kids in the 70s saw movies before streaming. Your parents took you to the movie theater to see it, and I saw mm-hmm. it multiple times. And it's it was released, re-released a lot in the 70s, so I saw it a lot. Um, love Peter Ustinoff's voice. Love Ollie Johnston's animation. Uh, next would be Ka. Um, I just, I think that character is great. He's not quite villain, not quite good guy. I think his scene where Shere Khan 
kind of taunts him while he has Mowgli caught in his coils up in the tree is just an incredible scene of these two villains kind of verbally sparring with each other. And then um, Gus Gus, just such a cute, distinct personality. Um, you know, the, this voice that you can't quite understand. So he's a true animated character and that a lot of his personality comes through in pantomime and performance. So that's the order that I would put them in. Okay. The last two we do, Ian Louie, Walt Disney World, Disneyland Resort, Disney Cruise Line. Ooh, I'm going to say Walt Disney World, Disney Cruise Line, Disneyland Resort, um, but they're all wonderful. Um, mm-hmm. Walt Disney World, uh, first Disney park I had ever been to, obviously working there and living right near it here in um, Central Florida. Um, you know, uh, it's near and dear to my heart. Disney Cruise Line, uh, just because as you and I have talked, like that is just such a vacation. Like you really just unplug. You have such a Disney vacation and such an an other vacation because, you know, a lot of those cruises, you can have all of the Disney things you associate, the characters, the shows, the food, but then you can also go on excursions um, when you can get off the boat um, at times. And then Disneyland, I did not go to until 1999, uh, first time I was ever there. Um, And I've only been back twice since, but um, each time I'm there, much like we were saying about uh, the Disney studio, you really have this feeling of walking in Walt's footsteps when Mm -hmm. you're there. There's really just a feeling of such rich Disney history when you're there. So that's how I would rank them. Okay. Well, thank you for playing Huey, Dewey, and Louie. Uh, do you have time to play one more game? Sure. Excellent. This game is called As the Nose Grows, Pinocchio, True or False. I'm going to give you a statement, and you have to tell me whether you think that statement is true or false. Here we go. The Walt Disney Legacy Award is Disney Parks, Experiences, and Products' highest honor, which recognizes exceptional individuals within the organization. True or False. I, Scott Jacobs, know someone who has a Walt Disney Legacy Award. Uh, that That is true. And I'm going to say that it's true that you know someone as well. <laughs> Can you talk a little about that? Yeah. So I was very fortunate to receive the Walt Disney Legacy Award back in um, 2011. Um, and, you know, it's everything that you just talked about. It's um, cast members uh, who kind of um, get together and recognize their fellow cast members who what they call dream, create and inspire um, and carry on Walt Disney's legacy. So um, I remember when I received it, I was working at Epcot in another area of World Showcase and um, my managers uh, surprised me. I had no idea I was receiving this, Uh, walked into uh, a shop in the France Pavilion and there was uh, my entire team there were cast members from the France Pavilion, from other pavilions, and they even brought guests into it as well. And they were all holding balloons and they had banners. And my boss said, uh, my manager said, do you know what's going on? And my first thought was, it looks like it's somebody's birthday because we would do that a lot for mm-hmm. you know a guest birthday. And um, then they revealed that you know I was receiving the Walt Disney Legacy Award. And it was one of those um, moments where um, you... I immediately thought uh, a wrong decision has been made here. I kept every day I would wear this name tag and you get you get a, a blue name tag with a, a pin on it of, of Mickey as Sorcerer. Every time I would put on the name tag, I would think that the Disney legacy police were going to come up and say, oh, Michael Lyons, yeah, there's been a mistake. We need the name tag <laughs> back because um, it it is a very humbling experience. Um, one of the most humbling experiences uh, of my life. And What's so wonderful about it is you put the name tag on and, you know, each day you go to work and, you know, working at Walt Disney World is fantastic, but it's a job and you're going to have um, days where you win and days where you lose. You know, you're going to have days where things are going great and days where things aren't. Um, But, you know, when you would put the name tag on or take it off at the end of the day, it was always a reset and always a reminder of why I came to work for Disney. So, um, yeah, one of the, the greatest honors I've ever had for sure. So thank you for bringing that up. Oh, of course. And, uh, congratulations on that. I know it's, you. it's, you've had it for quite some time, but, uh, much but congratulations. Thank you again. All right. The next one, 
Walt Disney was a chain smoker all of his adult life, typically smoking at least three packs a day. In 1955, he opened a tobacconist shop on Disneyland's Main Street, which closed in 1991. True or false, a piece of this shop still exists in Disneyland Park. I'm going to say true. It is true. Um, do you do you know what still exists? No, I don't. The Cigar Store Indian still oh. stands on the pavement outside the location where that store was. Wow. Isn't that neat? And, and fun yeah. fact, at a shareholder meeting in 2015, Bob Iger said that the company will, quote, absolutely prohibit the use of smoking in Disney, Marvel, Lucas, and Pixar films rated PG-13 and under, and that the only exception will be in films which involve historical figures known for smoking. Wow, isn't that something? Wow. Yeah. How times have changed, right? Where at one time Disneyland had a tobacconist shop right. uh, in the park, you know, and, and my dad and I were just talking about this the other day that um, uh, we remember, I remember as a kid going to see a movie, a Disney movie, and there was smoking allowed in the movie theater. And you'd see the mm. projection beam coming out from the projection booth and you'd see all the smoke in the yes. projection beam. And now, you know, you can't imagine sitting in a movie theater and somebody next to you lighting up uh, a cigarette or even a, you know, a store that would sell that uh, on Main Street USA. So, wow. Yeah. All right. I have one more because I know you cruised a lot on Disney Cruise Line. This last one deals with just that. In 1997, Disney Cruise Line purchased a 99-year lease for Gorda Key from the Bahamian government and renamed it Castaway Key, which is now used as the line's private island. True or false, Disney followed in Holland America Cruise Line's footsteps by building a dock at their private island. I'm going to say that's true. That sounds like I heard that somewhere. Do you have another guess? I'm going to say it's false. Michael, that is correct. It, wow. is, it is false. <laughs> so Disney was actually the first in the cruise industry to construct a pier that allows its ships to dock directly alongside the island so guests don't have to tender to land. Wow. Well, Isn't that pretty well, cool? Yeah. And uh, thankfully they did because it makes it a heck of a lot easier. Oh, yes, it does. Yeah. It's a huge time saver. Yeah. Well, Michael, thank you for playing Huey, Dewey, and Louie, and as the nose grows, Pinocchio, true or false, two games where I don't really keep score and the points mean absolutely nothing, but despite that, I hope you had fun. Yeah, thank gosh you weren't keeping score. <laughs> <laughs> At the end of every interview, I like to ask my Disney Fab Five questions in honor of the original Disney Fab Five, Mickey, Minnie, Donald, Goofy, and Pluto. Who is your favorite character from the movies? Um, as Mickey Mouse. Um, I, I know um, a lot of folks go towards Donald or Goofy. They feel there's a little more personality there, but I just have always, um, have always loved how Mickey is just positive, upbeat. Um, he's kind of the center of that group, you know? So, um, and on top of everything else, he's one of the most iconic figures uh, in the world. So for me, it's Mickey Mouse. Okay. Who's your favorite character to meet in the parks? Oh, wow. Um, Donald is probably the favorite in the parks because he's always a lot of fun. He's very playful. Um, I love when you see him signing the autograph books for the kids and he writes Donald Duck number one. Um, <laughs> I love the rivalry that carries on with Mickey. Like if he sees you wearing a Donald Duck t-shirt, he's always pointing it out. If he sees you wearing a Mickey Mouse t-shirt, I remember one time um, I was there with family and a family member had a Mickey Mouse t-shirt and he was kind of like shunning the family member away like he wouldn't take a picture with them, which obviously <laughs> he did. But I just love how, you know, he's all about Donald in the park. It just makes the photo a lot of fun. Nice. If you can ask any character a question, who would you ask and what would you ask? Um, I'm, you know, I'm thinking back to the movie Stand By Me. If you've ever seen the movie Stand By Me, where they're having mm -hmm. the conversation around Goofy, I'd probably go up to Goofy and say, so Goofy, Pluto's a dog. What are you? We need an explanation about mm. this. <laughs> mm -hmm. Okay. If you could have one special quality of any Disney character, what would it be? Um, you know, that's a good question. 
Does it have to be the Fab Five or could it be any Disney character? Any Disney character. Any Disney character. I, You know, I would probably say I would love to have Pinocchio's innocence and openness to everything that's going on in the world, as well as his um, courage uh, to do all that he did for his father. Mm. Okay. If you could spend a day with Walt Disney, what would you do? I would say, take a seat and tell me everything. (laughs) (laughs) I'd say, we're going to be here for a while. I have a lot of questions. (laughs) Right. Michael, I'm, I'm going to put a link to your blog, website, and podcasts in the episode description. But before we sign off, can you tell my listeners a little bit about your podcasts? Yeah. So uh, I co-host two podcasts. One is called Disorder, Every Disney Film that I co-host with my two friends, Andy and Hunter. We started that podcast back in 2017. Our goal was to look at and review every Disney animated film in chronological order, starting with Snow White. Um, We accomplished that about two years ago. We will go back every now and then when a new Disney animated film comes out. And in between, we kind of take a look at kind of a random potpourri of um, Disney movies from live action films to the Pixar films to uh, a film that's themed to a time of year like Halloween or Christmas. So that's one of the podcasts. The other one is called From Pencils to Pixels, the animation celebration podcast that I co-host with my friend Scott. And on that, we look at animation from every studio, from Disney, from Warner Brothers, from Hanna-Barbera, both uh, television animation, uh, movie animation, and everything from stop motion to CGI. Nice. I I know you're on your way to see your dad, so I I don't want to keep you any longer. Uh, Please send him my best. Thank you. Thank you so much for spending part of your day with me. I loved chatting with you. Yeah, same. I hope we can do it again sometime. This was great. And I appreciate you having me on. My pleasure. We'll talk soon, okay? Thanks, Scott. Have a good one. And that'll do it for this episode of The Mouse and Me. If you liked what you've heard, please subscribe to the show, rate it, leave a review, and tell all of your friends. And if you didn't like it, well, tell your enemies. Be sure to follow me on the socials by searching The Mouse and Me. You can also email me at themouseandmepodcast at gmail.com and visit patreon.com slash themouseandme to support the show. Okay, that's all for now. Thanks for listening, everyone. I hope you have the best day ever and see you real soon. (laughs) 